Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm joined as always by my friend Carl Truman, who is professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Now, Carl, before we introduce our guest, who is a returning guest, but we love our returning guests because they are true friends. And true um, fools, it has to be said. Friends, well, you know, fools. they are risky. You know, they they risk their reputation to be yeah. publicly identified with us, and so for that reason, um, we uh, we hold in high regard our returning guests. But 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 before we uh, uh, introduce him, uh, Carl, you were uh, on campus at the institution where this brother uh, serves as a professor, my alma mater. And um, how how did you find uh, the, the the Baptists in in the Midwest? Were they an accommodating um, uh, audience for you? Were they hostile in any way? No, uh, did they, they search you for any you know for a flask or anything like that? <laughs> no, it was very. I had a lovely uh, day at uh, Midwestern a, a few weeks ago, and uh, of course, one of their big hires recently is uh, an old friend, Tommy Kitt. Mm-hmm. Many listeners will know that uh, Tommy was at Baylor for some years yeah. and is one of the, I, I think, one of the most outstanding historians uh, yeah. of the the kind of colonial war of independence or yep. war of colonial rebellion, as I used to call it before I became a citizen, uh, that, that 18th century period. Um, now working on the, on a book on the Second Great Awakening. So mm. it was fun yep. to... Uh, to reconnect with uh, with Tommy, and uh, I have to say, I, I got the impression the academic standards have increased massively since you graduated, Todd. Well, that, yeah, there's no I, doubt I, about it. I'm not it. sure I, that you would get a degree these days. I, well, I mean, well, it's, it's see, definitely improved from from what I understand is that uh, when when I was a student there in the early 90s you could do most of your work with crayons and they've they've utterly changed that which is disappointing um but I think a few other changes but you know you mentioned uh, Tom you know you've got to have some resources to steal somebody away from Baylor you know so that's pretty impressive right yeah, there yeah. um but I I I will say that uh, as a as a graduate of of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary um I I'm just enormously truly and I say this with great sincerity um I'm enormously gratified and thankful uh, for, uh, I mean, there's no other word for it, for, for the reformation of that um, seminary and uh, its remarkable growth. And uh, they, uh, they they house the, the Spurgeon Library. And, when, and yeah, that's exactly what it, it is what it sounds like. It's Charles Spurgeon's library. It's, very, it's a very impressive building. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And it's uh, if 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 you insist on if if you're wanting to train for ministry and you insist on remaining a Baptist, I would highly recommend you go to Midwestern Baptist Theological so, Seminary. So you you think the Baptists can be legitimately called to the ministry? I, I I do. I think that God accommodates a lot of our weaknesses in this fallen world, Carl. That's that's true. He's and, he's very gracious. He's very, very gracious. gracious. <laughs> well, listen. Let's stop the torture. Our our guest is Matthew Barrett, who is uh, theology or, or professor of theology. Um, and you heard that right. Not associate professor of 
theology. <laughs> He's the professor of theology at uh, at at this wonderful, truly wonderful institution, uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, the best kept secret in the Midwest, which is Kansas City, Missouri. Which has a and wonderful art gallery, by the way. The um, the art, art museum, gallery. the Nelson art Adkins museum. Art Museum is a truly world-class art yeah. museum. And if you haven't been there, you, you need to go. And barbecue. So uh, Matthew <laughs> Barrett uh, is our guest. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for, for having me again. And I just want to say, Todd, yes. if, if anything in you wants to come back to Midwestern <laughs> Seminary yes. for, for training, yeah. <laughs> uh, I will make an exception on my syllabus and allow you to use crayons. I appreciate <laughs> that. I appreciate that. Would would they allow someone to come back who had like a solid C average? That's the thing we'd have to work on. Yeah, there could, there could be some negotiations. Okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, uh, Matthew, who is like the, 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 the author or editor of like 850 books, um, uh, has, uh, has recently completed uh, work on, uh, on a really impressive uh, volume that he has edited. Um, we're going to talk to him a little bit about this and well as some other matters as well, I would imagine. But it's entitled The Reformation as Renewal. Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Uh, Matthew, thanks for being on with us. So tell us just a little bit about, I mean, I, I have, you know, I know what's going on with this volume and part of the larger work that you and others um, have been, when I say others, I talk about people like Scott Swain and Mike Allen and others, um, both on the Baptist and Presbyterian end of this uh, movement of of theological retrieval or theological recovery. Tell us a little bit about that and and what's behind this this latest volume. Well, as all of you know, uh, there's plenty of books on the Reformation, sure. And so part of me just thought, why in the world write another book on the Reformation? <laughs> there's many good great books on the Reformation. Uh, Carl's written a few of himself. Um, but uh, when I when Zondervan asked me to write this book, which I call The Reformation's Renewal, that line there is really important. Uh -huh. Rather than just another history of the Reformation, I really had a burden to show my fellow Protestants what does it mean? What did it mean? Um, what did it mean to be Protestant? in the 16th or even in the 17th century. Uh, I say burden because, I mean, this this podcast is, uh, you know, this will be no surprise to the listeners. Um, I think Protestantism today has been quite influenced in countless ways by modernism, postmodernism. Uh, you look at evangelicalism today and uh, in, in so many ways, uh, theologically speaking, it is not just diverse, to put it nicely, but um, sometimes diverse in the worst sense of the word, because there is no agreement even on primary matters of the faith. So given our, our present context today, I just find Protestants confused, uh, to be honest with you. You know, I, I teach at a Midwestern seminary that come you know students come into class and they've been told uh, so many things conflicting things about what does it mean to be Protestant um, so this book in one sense it is a history of the Reformation but I I've called it a fresh intellectual and theological history because I I take students um, back to the 16th century to show that 
actually, as much as you've heard things like the Reformation is to be blamed for schism, or the Reformation is to be blamed for secularism today, um, or the Reformation, uh, you know, cut that cord of participation in God and, and just went the direction of nominalism. And, and that explains why, uh, you know, Protestants are so obsessed with the external and, and really have no place for God's presence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? These types of accusations, these, are, these aren't just of a, another century. These are accusations that are uh, sometimes leveled at um, heirs of the Reformation and some of the most uh, popular and even um, academic uh, works of, of history. And so students are being told all kinds of things. Um, to make it worse, uh, if that wasn't bad enough, uh, even in our own camp, sometimes the Reformation is celebrated rather than lamented. So praise God for that. But it's celebrated in sometimes the wrong ways, as if uh, you know some will lament the Reformation for schism. Others celebrate the Reformation uh, for you know, schism. Uh, as if the Reformation is an abandonment of tradition. Uh, you know, it, it got past those dark ages for a reason. And, and so for the first time, the Reformation has recovered uh, that, that which uh, was corrupted, um, even, even by the, perhaps the church fathers themselves. Uh, in this book, I try to move past so many of those misinformed uh, caricatures, and, and uh, I call them narratives. Uh, to actually give a, a, a more accurate understanding of who our Protestant forefathers were. And at the very heart of it, I'll say this, uh, just to be brief, at the very heart of it is this claim that in their own minds, uh, they thought of themselves not as, as those in total discontinuity with the past. This sometimes was, was a very painful accusation lobbed at them from Rome. You're innovators. Uh, you have departed from the church Catholic, but they made the counter argument. Actually, we we have the right to claim and to grab onto that one holy Catholic and apostolic church as well. And that was a controversial claim because essentially what they were saying was, you know, you see this. It, oh, it's it's remarkable because you see this across the Reformation. It, it doesn't matter matter whether it's Wittenberg or Geneva or London uh, or Zurich. In different ways, granted, but you still see this across the, the different corners of the Reformation. They are all saying something similar. We, too, are Catholic. And by that, they don't mean Catholic with a capital C. They mean Catholic with a lowercase c, as in we, too, are part of the, the universal church. In their minds, that was critical, not only for resurrecting their own reputation and credibility against these accusations from Rome, but also, I do want to add this, also for distinguishing themselves from the radicals of the 16th century, who, ironically, look a lot more like some of those caricatures I just mentioned. Yeah. So it it helped. Uh, it was a double-edged sword in that sense, and they considered this argument uh, really core to uh, the Reformation project yeah. itself. And so, and so you would actually say that the Reformers thought that there were Christians before the 16th century, right? <laughs> yes, you know, it, it sounds so silly. I, I know this, but um, sometimes we're given the impression that Martin Luther showed up and uh, 
he took a, a a bunch of pagans and right. he walked in as the first Christian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and suddenly the, um, uh, the gospel that had had never been uh, you know seen or heard of since the apostles made yeah. its first appearance. Yeah. Um, but that's of course M- Martin Luther would have uh, cringed at, right. at hearing that type of narrative um, because. As he's making his argument for reform, so I'm not, you know, glossing over that there were yes. considerable areas where reform was necessary. Uh, but as he made that argument, he was standing on the shoulders of others, um, and uh, some of those were church fathers. As the Reformation moved forward, uh, some of those were even um, early and high Middle Ages uh, in- intellectuals and, and scholastics and thinkers themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was teaching a class this morning, actually. I do a Christology class at uh, Grove, uh, and we were looking at canotic Christology from the 19th century, uh, Tomasius, Ebrard, Guess, uh, people like that. And one of the things that was striking to the students was that uh, canotic Christology, which is a clear break with the classical Christology you find in the Reformation, uh, is very close to some of the Christological formulations you find in popular evangelical writers today and i was trying to make the point that um you know we tend to think of the of of the divide as as between supernaturalists and naturalists between sort of traditional liberals and and conservatives in actual fact many of the the evangelical conservatives around today or much of our theology uh really doesn't stand in in continuity with the 16th and 17th centuries it stands much more in continuity with post-enlightenment kind of thinking that you find in the 19th century one of the important things i think in your book uh, matthew is you draw attention to the uh, the important uh dogmatic and structural continuities that exist between uh the 16th 17th century theology which of course is when the great confessions that many of us are confessional evangelicals or confessional protestants look to the westminster standards the three forms of unity when many of these are formulated really uh, a lot of the, the the key meaty theology in those documents is drawn uh, without much if any modification from the middle ages and the patristic era and so it's i wouldn't say it's entertaining because it's more annoying than entertaining <laughs> uh, but it is interesting to see uh, a number of people waving the banner of the reformation today who uh, might even have been burned at the stake for some of the things they're saying, <laughs> would certainly not have been held in very high regard by the kind of people who uh, took Servetus down, for example, yeah. in Geneva. So uh, I think your book's very helpful from that perspective. Uh, uh, do, you, do you think your book is going to make any impact on that particular wing of evangelicalism, or is it essentially a lost <laughs> cause at this point? Uh, to be Totally honest with you, Carl. Um, if there are some that are on the fence, uh, sure, I hope to nudge them over to the right side of the fence um, to, to properly and accurately understand uh, our Re- Reformation heritage. But, but yeah, I think what you're hinting at is right. There's there's another sense in which there um, there probably is a lost cause, uh, and I think this is this is not lost on the reformers in the 16th mm-hmm. century. Uh, I mean, very early on, right? I mean, you think of Luther and Karlstadt. Uh, Luther says to Karlstadt at one point after this long debate over uh, Karlstadt, he's so frustrated the Reformation is not moving fast enough. He wants images destroyed. And 
And, and Luther says, well, this is turning into a new type of legalism, et cetera, et cetera. You know, well, Luther says to him at one point, you know, you, Karlstad, you've, you've swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all. Um, <laughs> I, it's, a, it's quite the insult because essentially what Luther, I mean, if he pushes it further, he's essentially saying to him, you, you're standing um, on your own two feet uh, by yourself. Uh, as if no one has come before you, uh, as if you alone have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. And so Luther learns, I think, quite early, uh, as soon as Karlstad goes in that direction, because it's a radical direction, yeah. uh, it radicalizes itself until no one's left. It ends up being a party of one. Uh, it, it's, yeah. it's a bit ironic, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, the radicals who radicalize mm -hmm. uh, then disagree, eventually disagree with each other and have to excommunicate one another. And so at, at some point, the, the, the circle gets smaller and smaller. In that sense, I would say it's a lost cause. And, and that would apply uh, to, to some folks today as well. Um, we could put it this way. They uh, radicalize sola scriptura into solo scriptura, mm -hmm. uh, as if there are no authorities whatsoever, or as if... Um, uh, you know, you mentioned, Carl, even, uh, you know, doctrine as a whole, as if uh, we only pay attention to, say, soteriology mm -hmm. and ecclesiology, and then uh, we apply a certain hermeneutic to scripture that then can't make sense of, of metaphysics that's so important for, say, the doctrine of God or Christology, as, as you were teaching on today, Carl. Um, I, I think a lot of this is still quite relevant today, um, so that I, I would just say to listeners, um, you probably will take some wisdom to discern. Okay, is this person a lost cause, or is this person can they be corrected to actually look at the sources themselves and yeah. see? Oh, yeah, whether it's Luther or Calvin or, or Bullinger or Cranmer uh, or Jewell and so many others, they saw themselves as Catholic with uh, with a small C because they did not think of themselves as innovator innovators. Yeah. They, did, they thought of themselves as biblical, but not biblicists. They saw themselves as reformers, but that reform itself hinged upon and depended upon um, uh, the, both the church fathers and, and the medieval classics before them. I think you see this even uh, as early as the 1530s. You think of those uh, famous Wittenberg articles. Uh, long story here that I'm sure we can't go into, but there's this uh, fascinating conversation happening uh, between Henry and, and um, those under him and and, and Luther and, and those under him, whether there can be some sort of uh, cooperation or alliance, it fails in the end, of course. But what's so fascinating is that um, these Lutherans write these articles and you would think, right, you would think, okay, these articles will clearly set the Lutherans apart from anything in the past. It's quite the opposite. Uh, they are. They name uh, those church fathers that they are appealing to in order to establish their Lutheran yeah. doctrines. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, I would just say to listeners, if if you are at all confused about different narratives of the Reformation, the best thing you could do is actually go back and read the sources yourself. I think what you will find is certain certain radical narratives today, what I call the oppositional narrative. Yeah. Um, it's quickly dispelled simply by reading the sources for yourself. Yeah, it's very much an Anabaptist kind of narrative in many ways. I mean, we did have these 
as you pointed to with uh, Karlstadt, we did have these characters in the Reformation who repudiated uh, tradition as a whole, even as a concept. Uh, And they were disastrous uh, in the end. Theologically, within a generation, there is nothing of orthodoxy uh, left uh, among Mm -hmm. these groups. It always strikes me as odd. I remember being in a faculty discussion in another place where I worked many years ago, uh, and uh, a colleague raising the question, has anybody ever wrestled with these texts in the Old Testament that talk about God (laughs) changing his mind? And it's a sort of, well, yes. Of course. Uh, people have read the Bible for many centuries and they're well aware that Philippians 2 didn't appear yesterday. It yeah. has been thought about and commented on in the past. Um, so, yeah. yeah it's, I, uh, I think there's a couple of issues going on there, Carl. One is um, we, well, here at my institution, we love to say we're for the church. And I always tell students, you realize that doesn't mean merely your particular right. church right now in the 21st yeah. century. To be, if you really want to be for the church, then you need to be reading the Bible with the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and by doing that, you're actually just mimicking what the reformers were doing before us. So uh, that's the first problem is uh, I think sometimes we think we're just being biblical, but actually we sound more like enlightenment uh individuals um, mm-hmm. as if we read the bible by ourselves right reformers that would have been so strange to them um they are reading the bible with the church catholic the church universal so that as they yes they are appealing the bible as their final court of appeal because it alone is inspired by god but heiko oberman makes this great point where he says they are then secondarily looking to tradition as something that's instrumental so that they have this living, active conversation with the tradition to understand the text in the right and proper way so that they don't, you know, uh, go off the rails. Yeah. Um, so that that's one issue. The other issue that I, I, and I bring this out in my book, though it's not the main purpose, is I think sometimes today we have so focused on uh, the the doctrines of controversy uh, in soteriology, for example, that we forget the Reformers assumed an entire theology that they were glad to inherit with no modifications Mm -hmm. or revisions or reform whatsoever. And those doctrines are legion. So that's to your point, Carl, because when we end up in these odd conversations today where whether it's Christology or the doctrine of God, and we are putting on this narrative as if, Oh, we are being reformational. uh, But then we end up with unorthodox (laughs) doctrines. Um, The reformers would have saw that as not just a problem in doctrine, but a problem in the method itself. Mm-hmm. As, as quite short-sighted in the end. So all that to say, I mean, Richard Muller has made this point really well when he says, um, other than, you know, those those key polemical doctrines like justification or purgatory or papal authority, uh, the reformers on the whole, more or less, did not change the orthodoxy that they inherited. And I would just add to this, if they would have done so, then they would have proved Rome correct. 
to say mm. when, when Rome looked at them and said, yeah, you, you are innovators, you are heretical. So they knew better than that. Um, and, and this, I think, becomes apparent second generation, certainly third generation, definitely 17th century, as you said, Carl, um, the, the children of the Reformation uh, then are put in a position where they say, we need to codify uh, the Protestant faith confessions and catechisms, even whole treatments of theology, well, as they do that, they find themselves drawing more, uh, more broadly even on the tradition before them right. in order to write not just on justification, but even on um, you know the Trinity or the attributes of God. You know, as a pastor, uh, and I, I've very helped, and we've talked about this before, about uh, the rich material there is in preaching. Um, from, you know, the classical doctrine of God. There's just tremendous. But another thing about this that's been helpful to me and and encourages me as a pastor is that, you know, Matthew, and, and you're well aware of this, you and some of the others who've really been helping um, both Baptists and um, Presbyterians and, and Reformed and Reformed Anglican folks to think through and appreciate this project of theological retrieval. You guys have also been attacked in places like social media. Um, I've seen your name thrown out there, and uh, I, I know you had have no idea the source of it. Um, but uh, you know, as as leading people to Rome, this whole project is going um, uh, to lead people to 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 Rome. And you know, my my sense of this is actually ju- just the opposite, because actually evangelicals have already been fleeing to Rome. And I think a big reason for that is precisely because the untethered from history evangelicalism that they've been raised in did not give them a sense of connectedness, reverence. I mean, you have young people going, you know, I'm a part of a church that what is a hundred years old, you know, and I've got this friend of mine who's Eastern Orthodox and they're or Roman Catholic and they're in a church that's 2000 years old. And so you have these, these evangelicals who, and Carl and I have talked about this on the program before, who, who have flooded into Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, not because somebody, not because they heard, um, you know, classical theism, those undomesticated doctrines of God's preached, but because they didn't. Yeah. Um, not, not because they had good instruction that showed them that we are, we are proper inheritors of yeah. the first five centuries, but because they never even heard anything from the first yeah. five centuries mentioned. Todd, what you're saying right now is just gold. Yeah. Uh, because, and, and I'm not saying this as, as merely a theoretical point. My experience has been the same as yours. Right. Um, as I have encountered, especially young people, uh, if they are, if they are thinking of leaving, mm-hmm. it's not for because uh, you know uh, we talked about divine simplicity. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's not because um, we you quoted, quoted Augustine, Augustine, or a Thomas Aquinas, yeah. or an Anselm. That's not it. Uh, they are experiencing church, mm-hmm. uh, and, and by church I mean 21st century evangelical church life mm-hmm. um and the lack thereof right and then on the theological side they are not sensing any roots right. theologically and 
suddenly when 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 someone comes along who says my church and my theology are rooted in in the church universal uh suddenly it feels to them as if they have no ground on which to stand right yeah yeah and uh, i can't tell you how many times i've seen this uh it, and what i'll even go this far um i've even seen you know, if you were to ask, you know, what tips them over? <laughs> What's the straw that breaks the camel's back? It's when they then see certain radicals today that look a lot like radicals in the 16th century. Right. That then verify their worst nightmares, their yeah. worst fears that, oh, maybe exactly. Protestantism actually doesn't have roots. Maybe process, <laughs> it's not inherently connected in spirit to the church universal. And then they see those terrible caricatures. And uh, I mean, I don't necessarily blame them for feeling a bit nauseated. Yeah, absolutely. And then they yeah. they just give up at that point. Yeah. And so what I always say to them is, uh, don't pay attention to the caricatures. Those are, are sloppy misrepresentations of Protestantism. Protestantism uh, they are radicalizations of otherwise good principles. Yeah. Uh, instead, go back to actually history itself and look Look at what, say, the Reformed scholastics, for example. Look at how they went about their theology. Not only was it incredibly robust, um, but it was inherently uh, making the claim that they were, say, Augustinian. Or yeah. in some cases, they were even uh, refining and transforming Thomism for the sake of arguing against the Arminians and Sassinians. Right. I mean, yeah. just countless examples of this. Um, so... And then I'll, I'll just add one more thing here. Uh, I've been thinking more and more about this lately. And I, have, I, I speak to some of this in my book. I, in my chapters on the Reformed Church, I give examples of how someone like uh, Calvin, you know, what, what did it look like to worship in a Reformed Church? I, I worked through some of the liturgy. Likewise, in, uh, with, with the Swiss, with uh, Bollinger. Um, I, I give some practical examples there. Or what was it like to preach? You know, I give some, some examples. And the reason I do this is because I also find that Protestants today who are starting to feel tired of, of having no, uh, of just a lack of Catholicity, mm -hmm. I often find that it's just ex as much experiential. So that yeah. when they come to church and, uh, what they experience is so atheological right. and it's so cut from the past, all of a sudden they, they don't know it at first, but they start to get hungry and eventually they're starving for something objective, yeah. something true. That's not based on merely my subjective experience, but actually on the objective word of God and how Christians have linked arm across the centuries to confess that faith. It's good. I think it's good. that's a that's a great point to end on, actually, Matthew. I think it's a very practical point, and I would say, uh, as far as this book goes, it's a very practical book on uh, from that perspective. If you're wanting to understand the the historic riches of Protestantism, you want to understand the historic continuity of Protestantism with that which has gone before. If you want to understand how God has always had His Church. Uh, then this is an excellent book for you. And if you visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can actually enter for uh, a chance to win a copy of the book. It's entitled The Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church.
It's authored by our repeat guest today, Matthew Barrett, who's professor at Midwestern uh, Baptist Seminary in Kansas City. Uh, and while you're visiting our website, uh, if you feel led, uh, please do make a donation to the Alliance that allows us to uh, keep the wheels turning here. Uh, all that therefore remains for me now is to say thank you very much to our guest, Matthew, for joining us today and to thank you, the listeners, uh, for listening. And we look forward to being with you in two weeks' time. Come on, people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together, try to love one another right now. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Mortification of Spin.